Good morning. I'm going to be reading from Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me. I will betroth you to me. Go see forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Amen. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing today? Good. Uh, my name is Marshall, and I'm one of the leaders here at the church. And uh, if you're new, we're glad you're with us. And uh, we are in a series right now that you're jumping into the middle of, and so it's going to be a good time. Um, I, have a, I have a problem. I have a, this addiction, and my addiction, my poison, is noise. And it's a weird addiction, right? Because, like, I love being alone in the quiet. I, I crave being out in nature, out in the woods. Um, I, I, I just enjoy being by the soft babbling of a river, you know, where I can be alone with my thoughts. But in practice, the busier that my life gets, the more I have a tendency to sort of turn up the volume. And this makes my wife insane. <laughs> um, at night, after a long day when the kids are usually at their craziest uh, when, we're having, when we're having dinner time, I instinctively reach for my phone and put on some music to add to the cacophony of the house. And then as they become more and more out of control, the, I, I like unthinkingly, totally unconsciously, just start to turn the volume up. And my wife loses her mind. I am a noise addict. I am addicted to distraction. There was a number, uh, there was a, a, a moment a number of years ago that comes up again and again in my mind. When you're a parent of young kids, uh, there are very few windows where you get to do whatever you want for a period of time without having to answer to anybody. And when you get those windows, what you do with your time says a lot about who you are, really. <laughs> like who you really are under the surface. So there was one such evening when Carly was away with the kids for just a few hours and I had the house to myself. I could do whatever I wanted. And so a few hours later, Carly returns home. She opens the door with kids in tow to find me about 18 inches from the screen of my TV playing video games with an iPad leaned against the TV with a Timbers game on and an earbud listening to a podcast. I'm just being real here, guys, okay? And this memory comes up again and again in my mind because of how much shame I felt when I was caught 
the look of disappointment and confusion as she wondered how she ended up married to this child. <laughs> I have a problem. I have an addiction. And I am not alone. The world that we live in today is designed to distract and to numb us. We now refer to what we call the attention economy. Tech and social media companies are making billions of dollars after off of finding more and more creative ways to grab and hold our attention for as long as possible. One technologist referred to the age that we are living in as a time of, quote, constant partial attention. And all of us know that this is a problem, right? Like, we all feel it deep down. As parents, we have guilt every time that we sort of wake up from our stupor and realize that we've been scrolling on our phones rather than attending to our children who are right in front of us. Far too often, far too common, married couples spend the last moments of their day lying in bed next to each other, scrolling on social media rather than spending a little bit of time in conversation or connecting. A few, a few years ago, um, Carly and I had the chance to go to the Grand Canyon for the first time. And uh, we, we road tripped through Arizona to get there. And we arrived just as sort of the sunset hour was arriving. And, and we got out of the car. We ran to the rim to behold sort of the magnificence of the Grand Canyon. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon in person? It's, it's like, it's extraordinary. It is so beyond comprehension to look at. It literally took my breath away. And as I'm staring there, beholding sort of the magnificence of the Grand Canyon, I then sort of turn around for a moment, and this is what I see. Next picture. I see a crowd. This picture doesn't do it justice. There was a crowd of people that's sort of sitting in this amphitheater, and all of them were staring down at their phones. And it, like, that took my breath away. It troubled me deeply to behold this, like, spiritual moment, wonder at God's creation, and yet everybody else is living sort of with this partial attention. Living in a haze of constant partial attention is robbing us of the true life that God has designed each one of us to live. French philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote all the way back in the 17th century, he says this, all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in a room alone. That was written in the 1600s. <laughs> Every single one of us knows deep down we have this craving for a rich inner life. We long for the chaotic noise, both internally and externally, to be calmed. There's like a deep desire for what we sometimes refer to as inner peace or what the Bible calls shalom, but we struggle to find it amid the busyness and the distraction of our world. And so right now, as I mentioned earlier, we are in the middle of a series that we are calling Sacred Rhythms, where we are spending the winter months examining some of the ancient practices or spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith that are meant to reorient our hearts away from sort of the destructive patterns and tendencies of the world, and instead toward the wholeness that we find in our relationship with God. And so today, we're going to build upon a practice that we started talking about last week, which was the practice of learning how to be quiet. And today, we're going to talk about how we can learn how to be alone, the practice of solitude. One of the most consistent themes that's woven through sort of the ancient pages of Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, is that God almost always, or often at least, draws his people 
out from the busyness of their lives into places of solitude so that he can meet with them. We see this in the life of Abraham. God calls him away from his life, that, his normal life, out into the wilderness to join him out there. Jacob, he has this profound encounter uh, out, out in the desert when he's on the run from his brother. Moses, he fled from Egypt and he heard God speak through a burning bush while he was alone in the wilderness. David, he grew, he grew in his relationship with God, this intimacy, songwriting, all the, the beauty and wonder of who God is. He learned when he was a shepherd in the fields, alone with the sheep. The Apostle Paul, after experiencing a radical conversion, spent years in the wilderness with God. Um, even the Apostle John had a radical encounter with the Lord, revelation while in exile on an island. On and on we can go. There is something special about being alone in the desert that creates the right conditions to be able to experience God. And the word that's used for uh, the wilderness throughout the Old Testament scriptures is the Hebrew word midbar. Can you say midbar? And the most literal translation of midbar is the place of hearing. Over and over again, when God wants to speak to his people, he has to call them away from the noise and the busyness of their home, of their village, or of the city to a place of hearing. Following the 10 plagues that liberated God's people, Israel, from their bondage and slavery in Egypt, God led the nation out into the midbar, into the wilderness, where he would be able to then speak to them. It's said that 10 plagues got Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years in the wilderness to get Egypt out of the Israelites. And so God draws them out into a place where he could speak to them, where they could hear a new identity, a new way of living that was different from the rest of the nations all around them. And this is the theme that we see played out over and over again throughout Israel's history. Which brings us to the book of Hosea that Michaela just read for us. In the book of Hosea, God calls his messenger, his prophet, Hosea. He, said, he, he calls him to marry a prostitute as a prophetic sign for how God relates to Israel. That Hosea was to love this broken woman who would again and again betray him and be unfaithful to him. And it's meant to point us to the way that, that, that God loves and restores his people, that he forgives us over and over again, even though we are constantly unfaithful to him. And in the second chapter, there's this beautiful passage where God says this to his people. He says, therefore, I am going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give back her vineyards and I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. Then she will respond or sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. God draws his people away to places where they would be still and quiet enough to hear him speaking tenderly to them. And this is what sort of ancients have called the secret place. For thousands of years, God's people have gone to find private places where they could be alone and quiet with God. And it's in the solitude and silence where we learn to hear the voice of God speaking tenderly to us. What we talked about last week, the gentle whisper. And so while the world wants to allure us into sort of greater and greater distraction and busyness and noise, God is calling his people to learn how to be alone and quiet. And sometimes the Bible says that he gently invites us. The word in Hosea that's used here is allure. I will, you know, beckon. I will draw her. While other times it says that God drives or compels his people. 
but it's in the midbar, in the place of hearing where we most often and where we most deeply experience God. How many of you feel like you connect with God in sort of a special way when you're outside in the wilderness? Yeah, like a lot of us. I think that that's actually put in us by God. And most notably, we see solitude as one of the most important practices in the life of Jesus. If you have your Bible or grab a Bible in front of you, go ahead and open it up to Mark chapter 1. Sometimes it's good to see things kind of laid out on the page for us. Um, The first chapter of Mark is this marathon description of the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Okay, so like right after Jesus was baptized in the river... The Spirit of God, uh, it says, the Spirit of God drives him out. And where does the Spirit of God drive him? To the wilderness, right. Jesus was sent to the place of hearing, and it was in that space that he fasted for 40 days, and then he was tempted by Satan. And sometimes we think to ourselves that Satan came to Jesus at his weakest after he had been starved for 40 days, and, and that he was really vulnerable and isolated and alone, and that's where Satan attacks him. But the Bible actually gives us a more compelling image, which is that Jesus went for 40 days and was being prepared in the place of hearing. He heard the voice of the Father for 40 days before the voice of the Satan came and hit him. And then following this time in the wilderness, he returned to the region of Galilee, and he began to preach that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's available. It's it's for everyone. And from verses 14 through 39, we see all of this activity that Jesus did. And, and that, all of that activity seems to have taken place in about a day to two days, somewhere in there. It was a marathon of ministry, calling people to become his followers, healing entire villages full of sick people, confronting demons and setting people free, and preaching to crowds the good news of the kingdom of God. And then we read this in verse 35. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Amid all of the busyness of Jesus' life, Jesus prioritized getting away to be alone with God. Now, notice this word solitary place in verse 35. It's the Greek word eremos, and it's the exact same word that's used in verse 12 for wilderness. The Greek word for wilderness is the solitary place or the lonely place. So Mark 135 actually says that very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went into the wilderness where he could be with God. Jesus would get up early before the sun was even up to go be with God in the lonely place, in the place of hearing, in the wilderness. This was his pattern throughout the pages of the Gospels. All of his life and all of his ministry flowed from his time of solitude and silence with God. Prayer in the secret place was central to Jesus' life. And think about this. The reason, the only real reason that we know about Jesus' habit of retreating to be alone was because he was constantly being interrupted. Have you ever noticed that? Almost every single reference to Jesus retreating to be alone was followed by, and then he was interrupted. Look at verse 36, the very next verse. It says, Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. When when it says exclaimed, you exclaim it. (laughs) 
and so if you, or if you turn a couple of pages to the right, to Mark chapter 6, Jesus sends out his disciples on this ministry trip. He sends them out to go do all of the same stuff that he had been doing, preaching the kingdom of God, healing the sick, caring for the poor, casting out demons, all of that work. And while they're away, he receives this news, this horrible, tragic news, that his close friend and cousin, John the Immerser, had been unjustly beheaded by an evil king. And so his disciples, they return from their ministry tip, trip. They're tired and they're excited. They're like kind of that, that buzzy feeling you get after a long day of doing something exciting. And, Jesus is, and, and as they return, Jesus is in the midst of deep grief. So they get into a boat together to go out into the Aramos, into the wilderness, where they can be with God and they can just essentially get their souls back. And when they arrive at the other side of, of the sea, they discover a crowd of 5,000 plus people are waiting for them. And on top of it, it turns out all of these people are hungry and no one packed a lunch. If ever there was a time when Jesus had the right to demand some alone time, it was then. Like soul care, right? And yet he served. And as night came, it says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. And so after a packed time of ministry, Jesus sends everyone away. He sends his, his disciples, his close friends, he says, guys, you, I need alone time. Please get in the boat, go away. And then he goes and he spends the night praying. To Jesus, what was of greatest importance, even more important than sleep, was to spend time recovering his soul in his Father's presence. For Jesus, the lonely place, the wilderness, was what all of his ministry flowed from. I've often wondered, I mean, as a, as a dad of small kids especially, I've often wondered how frustrated Jesus must have felt being constantly interrupted when all he needed was some alone time with God. But the more I wonder about it, the more I see the character of Jesus, that he was interruptible because his whole life was oriented around consistent time with God. Sometimes we, we fall into this trap of assuming that we can just keep on grinding and eventually we'll catch our breath with a day off or a vacation or just some alone time after the kids finally go to bed. We tend to live at a deficit, hoping that eventually we can recharge. And then what happens? The day off gets blown up with extra tasks or a last minute email from your boss or social obligations or a million other things. The vacation ends up not being very restful. It ends up being really stressful and is worse than if you just stayed home. Kids' bedtime goes 45, minute longer, 45 minutes longer with demands for more books, more bedtime snacks, more conversations about which Pokemon card I want to get. Sorry, it's just me. Maybe it's just me. And the recharge just never comes. It never arrives. But when instead we live with these consistent times of retreating, finding those moments of being in the secret place, regular rhythms of solitude and silence and prayer, when interruptions hit, we can meet them with tenderness instead of frustration. You see, when you're living from a deficit, interruptions bring out the anger and the frustration in our hearts. But when we live from overflow, what pours out of us in the moments of interruption is grace. Jesus knows exactly what it feels like to have his plans disrupted. He's been there. 
but he also shows us the way to live from overflow rather than at a deficit. And it's through regular, intentional time away from other people and away from the noise to be in God's presence. One more quick example. In Luke chapter 5, we read this. It says, Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and pray. As you read the Gospels, it seems like the more in demand Jesus was, the more he prioritized getting away to be alone with God. And this is a hard-learned lesson that I am still being taught in my life. You see, the higher the demands and the less margin I have in my schedule, often the first things to get tossed from my plate are solitude and silence and private prayer times. I'm a pastor, <laughs> and I know that's probably not very reassuring to hear from me right now, right? But it's the truth. And yet, by God's grace, he keeps drawing me back to what I need most, which is alone time with him. The higher the demands and the tighter my schedule becomes, the more crucial it is to retreat to be alone with God. He draws us out into the midbar, to the place of hearing, so that we can learn to hear his voice. He draws us into the aremos, to the lonely place, so that in the lonely place we can be with him. And throughout history, Christians have prioritized this as a spiritual discipline, solitude and silence. And I would contend that this is one of the most crucial disciplines for us as followers of Jesus to learn how to do to be healthy in our world today. Basic definition, solitude is simply intentional time away from people and noise, to learn how to be with ourselves and with God. It's all about learning how to be alone and quiet. And this is not an easy practice for many of us. It, it kind of sounds a little bit enticing at first, but then in practice, it can be quite unsettling at the beginning, especially if you are like me, if you are addicted to distraction and noise. Uh, Lewis Boyer write, writes this. He says, solitude is a terrible trial for it serves to crack open and burst apart the shell of our superficial securities. It opens out to us the unknown abyss that we all carry within us and discloses the fact that these abysses are haunted. When I first started practicing solitude, uh, like as a discipline, it was awesome for like 10 minutes. And then I got bored. And then I got really bored. And then I got fidgety, and then I started to become aware of myself, which, you know, made me really anxious. And I ended up getting back in the car after a couple of hours, feeling sort of less certain and less confident than when I started. I was unnerved to stare into the abyss in my life, even just to get a glimpse of it. Um, some of you might have read, there was this, uh, this article in the New York Times recently describing a room in Minneapolis that is uh, the quietest place on earth. Did any of you guys read that article, a few of us? Um, and, and in the article, it talks about how like, there are these challenges where they try to see who can stay in the room the longest. Like, What is the record for how long you can stay in the room? Um, and most people can't stand to be in the room for more than a couple of hours because in the silence, you become so attuned to the sounds of your body functions. So they describe how people like, are in the quiet and they start to hear the sound of their blood flowing, which would freak me out, right? 
And so when you live surrounded by noise, being in quiet long enough to become aware of what's happening under the surface will take some getting used to it. It can actually be quite unnerving. For many of us who are so accustomed to distraction and noise, we have to learn how to be okay being alone with ourselves, how to be slow and how to be quiet. We have to retune our ears to be able to hear the gentle whisper of Jesus. And this takes time and it takes discipline. Detox is inevitable, inevitably going to be part of it for every single one of us. But the detox, it leads to health and freedom on the other side. It's wonderful because in the practice of solitude and silence, we begin to find our souls again. It's there that we hear God's voice, and it's there that we regain our sense of self and sense of identity with God. So I'm going to give a couple very, like, almost dorky how simple these tips are. Sound okay? Three quick tips for how we can begin our journey into solitude and silence. First, we need to learn to be quiet. We are surrounded by noise. Much of the time, it's our noise. Why do we need to have the TV on or a podcast playing or music in the background whenever we drive or fold laundry or cook? As humans, we have to learn how to cultivate more quiet in our lives or else the focused, intentional times with God start to, uh, they become cluttered with all of the noise that we've been processing. We will end up living in perpetual detox if noise is around us all of the time. We have to learn to be okay in the quiet. And listen, as I said earlier, this is the most glaring weakness for me. The more stress that I am feeling, the more noise I surround myself with. A sure sign that I am not well is when I go through times of having an earbud in my ear like 24 hours a day. I invested in this really great pair of earbuds, the Jaybird Vistas 2s. You don't know why? They're water resistant, and I can wear them in the shower. <laughs> am I getting too real? <laughs> I, thought this was, I thought this was a safe place. I'm feeling really judged right now. <laughs> I have to fight the addiction. Because while, while my flesh thinks that I'm trying to crowd out the anxiety, all that I'm really doing is crowding out the peace of God. Spending time in quiet before, before work or in the evening hours, it's crucial for the health of our souls. So tip number two, find a place to be alone. Where can you be alone and mostly uninterrupted? Maybe for some of us, it's just a favorite chair where you can sit by a window and you can look outside. Maybe you have a room in your house that you can retreat to, where you can close the door and, and be, be uh, in solitude. But for many of us, home may be the last place that you're going to find any kind of alone time. You may have like a small apartment or kids or roommates that just always are around. And so finding solitude for some of us might require getting us out of the house. During the summer months especially, I like to carve out time once a week to go down to the river and just sit for a few hours. I leave my phone in my car. I don't take a book. I don't take a journal. I don't take anything with me. I just go sit on a rock. And, I, and my only requirement is that I cannot leave that rock for four hours. And I know, pastor privilege, right? <laughs> Must be nice, Marshall. Um, but believe it or not, even doing that is such a sacrifice for me. It takes a lot of planning and intentionality to be able to carve out just like a window to be alone with God, even though I'm a pastor. Another thing I do, which was recommended by my doctor, is sometimes I just get off work uh, an extra 20 to 30 minutes early 
And I leave and I drive up to WSU Vancouver on my way home and I sit in my car in silence and I just sort of take in the view. Just 20 minutes or so of quiet with God carved out on my commute home to sort of reset before I start the evening routine. For my wife, on the other hand, she, she finds uh, solitude most often on her runs. She goes on hour-long jogs or walks a few times a week, and she leaves her phone behind, no earbuds, no nothing, and she just goes out on the trail that's right over by our house where she can be with Jesus for, for an hour. So it's finding a place where you can be alone a couple of times a week. And then the next tip, I know, this is really complex. Find a time to be alone. And this is where it's going to get hard. You have to prioritize time for solitude. It will not just happen on its own. And for most of us, it's not going to be the most convenient time of day where we're going to find that alone time. I remember talking with this retired guy one time. I was asking him what his sort of routines with Jesus are. And he told me about his daily routine of sleeping in until 9 a.m. and then spending the first hour of his day alone in the hot tub with God. Charmed life, right? But hey, good for you. Like, if you, if you can do that, like, live the dream. That's amazing. For the rest of us, it probably means sacrificing something. It might mean sacrificing your lunch hour or time when the kids are napping, when you could be cleaning or taking care of other things. It might mean sacrificing TV at the end of the day in the evening. For me, the best time to be alone with God is in the very early hours of the morning. The Gospels record that Jesus would go to the Aramos in the early hours before the sun was even up. And so I try to get up most days between 4.30 and 5 a.m. because it's the only, day, only time of the day that I can be alone. And I want to be clear, I am not a morning person, okay? This is pure discipline, but it is crucial to prioritize time of solitude with God. And here's one of the, here's like a truism that I discovered. Late at night, I will almost never do the right thing, okay? <laughs> like, if I'm up late, I am most likely going to be scrolling social media or watching TV or eating sugar. I make bad choices at night, like universally, okay? But here's the flip side of the coin. Early in the morning, I almost never do the wrong thing. I don't wake up at 4.30 in the morning and immediately crave TV or alcohol or ice cream. I make good choices in the morning. So my wife and I, we've decided that we want to orient our lives around making those choices. We prioritize going to bed super early, popping melatonin, because there's no way I can get to sleep at 9 p.m. on my own, and, and so that I can avoid the bad decisions of the evening, and I can wake up early in the morning, and I can make good decisions. And some of you are different from me, and I celebrate your late-night spirituality, like you're, while the rest of us are, are drinking a beer and eating ice cream and watching reruns of The Office, you're, you know, caught up in the third heaven. That's awesome. Good for you. <laughs> I am terrible at night. The key, whatever it is, the key is carving out those times to be alone with God, even for 20 or 30 minutes a few times a week. It will transform your soul. And when we carve out those spaces and we find ourselves in those moments of solitude and silence, we don't need to make it complicated. You don't need to know any weird, ancient, churchy, Latin practices. The psalmist simply says, be still and know that I am God. We are making space to simply quiet our minds and our hearts, to breathe in and out, and to sit in the presence of God. Dallas Willard writes this, he says, when we go into solitude and silence, we stop making demands on God. 
It is enough that God is God and we are his. We learn to have a soul that God is here, that this world is my father's world. Job, they are not really something we have to think to do. They are whom we have become. And so in solitude, we are surrendering ourselves to the gentleness and the peace and the slowness of God. We are making space to hear his voice. And you know what I found over my years of being alone with God and in the quiet? You know what God likes to talk about the very most? I found that God mostly likes to talk about who he is and who I am. Believe it or not, God does not seem all that concerned about all of the things that seem to be racing through my mind all of the times, all of the things that I need answers for today. When he talks to me, he doesn't tend to say much about what I should do. Sometimes he does. Usually, though, God tells me who I am. He reminds me of my identity as his son. He tells me that he loves me. And I often wonder how, how much of Jesus' alone time was him simply hearing from the Father the same thing that he heard the moment that he came up from the waters of baptism. You are my beloved son, whom I love. I'm pleased with you. And when we retreat for times of solitude and silence, we are making the space in all of the midst of our unknowingness and our anxiety and our disappointment and our tension that we are feeling, all of the clutter and chaos and noise of our lives, we're making space to reach out to God and saying, I need to know that you love me. Like, not up here in my head. I need to take the time to get it from reading it on a page to being able to recite it to experiencing it right here. It needs to become real for me. It needs to get deep inside of me. And this, it takes time. This is why last week when we were talking about the idea of silence, we read from the Psalms that he, he speaks to us in the, uh, what is it, the thunder of the secret place? Or no, the secret place of thunder. He speaks to us in the secret place of thunder. We need the voice of God to speak past our cognitive minds and to thunder in our souls. And what we need most to hear is, you are my son or my daughter whom I love. I'm pleased with you. In Hosea 2, God says that he will allure his people to the midbar, to the place of hearing, and speak tenderly to her. And do you remember what he said, that he will speak over her in that space? It says, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will not call me my master. In verse 19, he says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. In verse 23, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. What's on God's agenda when you go into his presence in the secret place is to tell you who you are. He wants to remind you that you are his, that he is not just your master. He's not just an idea that we ascribe to. He is our beloved. 
He tells us who he's made us in Christ, that we are not identified according to our brokenness or the things that we did yesterday, but that we are counted righteous because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, paying for all of our sin. He washes us clean in the secret place of all the defilement of sin, of, and sin and noise that pollute our lives, and he restores us to the way that he has called us to walk. It's in the solitude and the silence that we find our souls again. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is, do you sense him alluring you, or beckoning you, or calling you? You are not going to hear him in the noise. You're going to find him in the quiet. You're going to discover him in the place of hearing. You're going to discover that you aren't alone when you go to the lonely place. And when you find him in the quiet, you will find your true self hidden in Christ. Amen?